welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. Showing signs of moving away from its COVID zero policy, following rowdy protests in about two dozen cities, for three years Chinese citizens have been subject to sudden draconian lockdowns, often trapping them in shopping centres, gyms, and God forbid Disneyland, as well as restrictive testing regimes. Some of the restrictions are being lifted in certain cities, following what's become known as the white paper protests or the A4 movement. When citizens came out holding blank pieces of paper to protest both against COVID restrictions and censorship, it's the biggest and most widespread set of protests since the Tiananmen movement in 1989. And this month, we're joined by a stellar group of interviewees to discuss what to make of all this. Chen Chen Zhang is assistant professor of international relations at Durham University and co-host of the Shucha podcast. Zhe Yiyang is China reporter at MIT Technology Review. And William Hurst is Chonghua Professor of Chinese Development at Cambridge University. Bill, let's start with you. You've just written a masterful piece in Time, summing up what the protests tell us about China's future. You write that it'd be a mistake to think that the protests haven't had an impact just because they've died down.、Um, what do you think is their lasting impact? Well, I think the impact is that they've shown that frustration with lockdown and with zero COVID. Could serve as a kind of master frame or or umbrella narrative、uh, that would tie together otherwise quite disparate strands or repertoires of contention,、uh, and they've shown also that、uh, a significant number of people were willing to take fairly high risks to mobilize collectively and also to articulate grievances directly against the central government, and that that's quite rare、um, in Chinese society, even though protest is not rare at all. So I think that impact、uh, will be felt in terms of the government learning from this,、uh, both uh, that certain frustrations exist and that certain kinds of contention are possible, but also that certain kinds of responses、uh, really do work better. And so what the government has done this time of essentially restraining itself and not not responding in the first instance to the protests and then turning the dial only very very slightly. Towards repression and sending sort of very oblique messages that repression might be coming was sufficient to sort of restrain the protests and wait for them to peter out、uh, of their own accord, which of course they did once that master frame began to break down. But it's it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that the government always uses this kind of mixture of sticks and carrots, and this time it seems to have reversed pretty quickly. On this whole zero COVID policy, which has been tied so closely to Xi Jinping, you know, personally endorsed by him, Bill, do you think that will embolden people to make more demands, more protests over time? Because it does seem to have had an impact this time. Two things. First of all, I don't think the protests have actually had a significant impact on relaxation of zero COVID.、Um, I think that there were some plans that must have been. 
for a very long time in the works, uh, such as the new vaccination drive to reach the elderly uh, that began almost like clockwork on the 1st of December, um, and which perhaps not coincidentally would get elderly uh, residents vaccinated with both doses and fully immunized almost exactly in time for uh, Chinese New Year on the 22nd of January. And so that plan must have been there for a while. It may have been moved up by a few days or even a week, but you can't roll out a mass vaccination campaign uh, overnight in 24 hours. Even the Chinese government can't do that. If we look at the restrictions that are being eased, they're not being eased everywhere, right? The government consistently reminds us that dynamic zero COVID is in fact a complicated suite of possible measures and policies and regulations, not one switch that gets flipped on or flipped off. And what we've seen for months is that there are different regimes in place in different cities, uh, in different neighborhoods, uh, even building to building. Right? Your building might be free and open, mine is locked down and I can't leave my apartment. Um, that's been the case throughout China for a long time. It's still the case now. So yes, I think the tone has changed and I think they're certainly moving in the direction of easing, but I don't think they've abandoned the policy or that it's completely gone. I think the earliest we'd see a real reopening is probably indeed the 22nd of January. More likely, I still think, uh, is the time in March after the two meetings are over, um, that once those are finished, there would be a lot, of, uh, a lot less political pressure to keep lockdowns in place uh, and more incentives to, to, to really begin opening up. So I think it'll take a while. Sorry, by the two meetings, you mean the National People's Congress yeah, and the Yeah, and, and the CCC Chinese People's meeting. Political Conservative Congress, yes. So once those are over in March, I think there will be very strong pressure to open for economic and social reasons. But I think they may be trying to accelerate now to, to hit the target of Chinese New Year. So if the protests have had any effect, it would be, uh, on in terms of easing of the policies, it would be moving up the calendar slightly. Um, but I also think that um, the government will be concerned that it not be too obvious that concessions could be given to protesters because the, the three basic strategies that any government can adopt in responding to a protest uh, are to bargain, to signal, or to do nothing. By bargaining, you offer concessions and you try to buy off protesters and convince them to stop protesting. Um, by signaling, you, you repress and try to deter other protesters from coming out. Um, and then by doing nothing, you, you just don't do anything. You can't respond uh, or choose not to respond. But if you adopt a bargaining response, the danger is that you've revealed what you're willing to do. Uh, and you've, you've uh, sent a message to others who might consider protesting that they can get something from doing so. And so you might induce further waves of protest. And so I think they'll be very keen not to do that if they can avoid it. The, the, these protests haven't stopped altogether. I saw it at Nanjing Tech. There was a, another protest after um, they locked down the campus after just one case of, of COVID. I mean, do you think that lockdowns are still going to lead to quite spectacular protests or, or have things shifted? Well, there is a significant change, change happening right now in that there won't be a lot of mass scale lockdowns uh, as the new COVID easing measures declare. We are going to have to see whether this actually being carried out by the local government, right? If they're still going to have they're still going to have lockdowns, then people will react, sometimes maybe even violently towards that in a way of protest. But 
if they are going to stick to what they're saying and not in, instate this kind of mass lockdowns, then I do think that there's much less desire from the people to kind of come out in groups against the, 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 the lockdown uh, the lockdown policies. Um, so yeah, right now we have witnessing like the scale of the protests really kind of wind down a lot significantly. Um, two weeks ago, it was really kind of a just genuine sense of like people feeling they have, they've suffered for so long that push people on the street. It's like completely spontaneous. Right now, I don't really think that kind of sentiment is still there. So I feel to see like the same scale of protest happen again. I saw a report from Nomura saying 53% of cities still have some kind of restrictions in place. Uh, so you, when you're looking at social media and WeChat, do you think the mood has shifted or is the, you know, do you think the kind of censorship has kind of come back so people aren't really expressing themselves anymore or, or what? What can we tell from um, from what what we're seeing? I actually feel like a lot of people are more optimistic than I am, or than I assume they would be. Like I'm seeing my friends posting on social media saying like, oh, that this is the end of it. Oh, like everything's going back to normal. I myself am not that sure. I feel like it's still going to take a really long time for China to roll back all of the pandemic measures that it has instated over three years. But a lot of them, they really feel like this is kind of like a 180 degree change from the government. And they feel like this signals the government will will do more in the future to kind of take down all of these measures. I myself, it's still a little more pessimistic about that. But in, to uh, but, but about what you're saying, I feel like right now the censorship definitely still there is still kind of like preventing people from talking about uh, the government actions in an active way. But I do see a lot of people genuinely feeling like maybe I can get my hopes up again after three years. Maybe I can feel like in a few months, maybe like like Bill said, after the spring festival, maybe we can have like kind of like back to normalcy again. Mm. And Bill, I mean, you've written about process for a long time and, and you've suggested that there's the potential for widespread protests involving a, a wide swathe of groups, not just students. I mean, what do you think that would take? I mean, given this was sparked by a particular incident in, um, in Xinjiang. Well, I mean, we saw that happen this time. Uh, that the protests really drew together workers, students, uh, other urban residents who are upset about kind of urban governance and social service delivery issues, uh, and at least a small number of kind of more systemic critics of, of, of the CCP, right, who are upset about these sort of broad issues. Um, the way that that happened is really, I think, the way that most protests happen in China, which is that we had something that I would call a structural frame that appeared, right, or a mass frame, if we wanted to call it that, rather than an individually um, articulated and deployed frame. So most of the literature on social movements kind of assumes that you've got a, a leader and an organization who craft a framing and then deploy it strategically um, in order to convince people to join the protest movement uh, and to stay in it. In China, you really can't do that, and you haven't been able to do that for a very long time very easily. Most of the time, if a leader emerges, that person is going to be targeted for repression. And if you try to build an organization, that's a good way to get the state interested in you in a negative way, right? But if a frame sort of reveals itself and that frame resonates powerfully to a large enough number of people, 
those people may decide to protest uh, sort of spontaneously. And that's exactly what happened this time. The fire and the videos of it and, and of, of the building burning and, and the people screaming inside resonated very deeply with a very wide cross-section of people in many different parts of China, such that they felt sort of spontaneously motivated to protest. And that's also why it's very hard to sustain. Because there's no leader, because there's no organization, because there's no one to keep the protest, quote-unquote, on message, all of a sudden we started seeing the claims and the, and the grievances moving from the very specific to the very general, right? From, I'm upset because of this fire and the, and the failures of governance surrounding that to, I'm upset about censorship in general and I'm going to hold up the white piece of paper. That's quite dangerous in some ways from the state's point of view, but it's also quite difficult to sustain such a protest because there were plenty of people who wanted nothing to do with the protest about censorship, right? but who were just upset about the governance issues related to lockdown and the inconveniences caused by lockdown. Um, and once the protest starts morphing away from that, that frame that had resonated for them, they don't want to participate anymore. And, and then they start to, to disconnect or to fray back into these individual strands. So you're going to have workers protesting about factory conditions, and you're going to have students protesting about the fact the university is sending them home, but the hometown won't let them go. And so they've now been rendered homeless, essentially. Uh, and then you're going to have people still upset about urban governance issues, and you're still going to have some people upset about sort of more systematic issues in the regime, but they won't be linked together anymore because that resonant frame has dissipated. I just want to add a quick thing. Um, I really agree with Will, and I feel like one thing I've been thinking is kind of like comparing what has happened in during this round of protests to the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. And then there in Hong Kong, we see kind of like the summarization of like the five core demands, and then people kind of keep keep repeating that uh, when they are going on the street and like talking to the government. Um, here, I have seen people trying to also come up with like five core demands, six core demands, but I don't see any of them really kind of gained enough support from like the general public and they just kind of like disappear over a few days um yeah so i do feel like even though there are a lot of people kind of going on the street spontaneously it is a little it has been hard for them to kind of reach the central goal of like this is our core message from this protest this is what we want to get out of it and because of that since there has been some changes it seems like the government is willing to is the COVID con control, and some of them start to feel like they're not that willing to participate in the protests anymore. Chen Chen, the victims of the fire in Xinjiang, which sparked these nationwide protests, were actually Uyghurs, um, and many of their relatives, ironically, aren't able to return to Xinjiang to bury them. But we saw Han urbanites taking to the streets throughout China proclaiming that we're all Xinjiang people. I mean, do you think we saw a moment of inter-ethnic solidarity against all odds? Um, it's hard to say, I think, with regard to the domestic protests, because I think one of the limitations of the protests, um, as also pointed out by lots of diaspora Uyghur activists, is the fact that although the immediate trigger, as you said, was the rumor to fire, and the victims were mostly, if not all, Uyghurs, um, but the Uyghur actims, the Uyghur victims themselves were largely invisible or only appeared as an abstract symbol, you know, under the label of um, our last com uh, compatriots, Yunnan Tongbao, in most of the domestic protests. 
Um, and I think the awareness about Uyghur persecution among Han Chinese protesters uh, within China vary greatly. Uh, they vary greatly both within and outside of China. From some of the interviews I read, um, some of them who took part in the Wurumqi Road protest in Shanghai were aware of what's going on in Xinjiang. Some played Uyghur songs at the vigil. Um, but acknowledging and standing up against the Uyghur persecution was certainly not a central issue in these events. But then we know that in Milan, China, people are already putting themselves at great risk simply for taking to the street. And now zero COVID is ending, but many of those young people um, who fought for it are still in custody or being investigated for, by the police. So I think even though, you know, we can reflect on the limitations, but for those of us who are outside China, um, we're not in a position to say to those on PRC territory that you're not doing enough. And then when we look at the overseas communities, I think it's very encouraging to see awareness and solidarity is growing in um, diaspora communities. And I read stories in both Chinese and English language media about how some um, overseas students are starting to not only oppose COVID policy, but also change their mind about uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan and Xinjiang. I don't know if you saw it, there was a clash between Chinese and Uyghur attendees to a vigil in Amsterdam. And I read on initial uh, media that a Chinese man who was not happy to see um, the East Turkestan flag at the vigil actually apologized to the Uyghur organizers afterwards after he learned about their oppression and their cause. So it's really a learning opportunity for many um, overseas. But I think that op- that space is really, really limited domestically uh, because of information control, censorship and the fact that those protests were crashed quickly. Um, and inevitably, there are those who hold Han supremacist views and subscribe to this hegemonic Chinese-ness advocated by the uh, PRC state, which means they, they believe that Uyghurs, Tibetans, people of Hong Kong, Taiwan should identify as Chinese, should identify with the Chinese state, and they would dismiss their, their pursuit of, uh, of democracy and independence and separatism. But there are also those who were misinformed and now are willing to learn and willing to challenge their previously held views. Um, and in that sense, I think um, th- this is an opportunity for um, inter-ethnic solidarity to emerge. There's lots of reflections. Um, there's an online group called Not Your Little Pink. Um, they advocated for adding closed internment camps as a fifth demand of the movement. And they said that some Chinese protesters used phrases like compatriots, um, we are all Xinjiang people to express support. But these well-meaning words, they say actually conceal and deny the specificities of the oppression Uyghur people suffer in China and ignore the direct demand of many um, Uyghur and other Turkic Muslim minorities that is close the camps and stop the persecution against them. And I also saw an extraordinary video clip where um, a Uyghur activist was making a speech to a Chinese crowd and he was saying, you know, you didn't believe it before. 
Do you believe it now? And the crowd shouted back, yes, we do. Do you see it now? Yes, we do. Are you willing to uh, stand with us now? Yes, we are. And I think these are really um, moments, moments of hope. Mm, indeed. Another moment of hope, and uh, I think it's really been a striking feature of the protests, is the really prominent role that women have played. And, and when you, you think about the protests, a lot of the most striking images involve women. Um, for example, the woman in the, the Jurjan tourist town of Wujan, who's dressed in a black jacket, she's wearing chains, she's taped her mouth shut, and she's carrying a blank piece of paper. Um, and other cases where women have you know, faced down university administrators. I mean, why do you think women have had such a prominent role in the protests? Yeah, yeah. I think there are two things. So first, women are taking a leading role in many of the protests, um, especially in the cities and university campuses and in overseas um, organisations. Um, and another thing is that feminist uh, voices are highly visible in these movements. We see, for example, placards saying things like without an end to patriarchy, there will be no end to autocracy. And we want queer, we want diversity, we want love. Um, and also the kind of protest referring to the uh, Chen woman scandal in Shuzhou we just mentioned. And they also criticized some of the misogynist and, uh, slogans used by um, some non-feminist protesters. They showed an uh, acute awareness of intersectional oppression and the importance of intersectional and transnational solidarity. And I think this is all very um, encouraging and also different from, say, the older generation of dissidents and democratic activists. You know, some of them turned out to be quite reactionary regarding gender and social justice issues, as uh, Yao Lin wrote about in this piece on the Trumpist turn of Chinese liberal intellectuals. And as to why is that, I think, you know, feminism has indeed been one of the most influential and enduring movements in China in recent years. It's been uh, incredibly resilient despite repression and censorship. Um, feminism, gender issues have enjoyed sustained attention and considerable agenda-setting power on social media. And these ideas, feminist ideas, are especially influential among the young and educated urban population. The, the hashtag MeToo movement was huge. And throughout the pandemic, we have seen lots of mobilizations around gender issues, including against the state media's dehumanization of female medical workers, while uh, seemingly praising their self-sacrifice um, and the backlash against Jiang Shanjiao, the virtual idol promoted by the Communist Youth League at one point. Um, and of course, mo most recently, the Chen woman scandal. So before this wave of COVID protests, uh, feminist uh, activists in China and beyond already were um, mobilizing around um, th this trend woman issue and they were already highlighting feminist and queer uh, messages against patriarchal authoritarianism in um, the poster movement. Mainly it was an overseas uh, movement following the City Bridge protest and the 20th um, Party Congress. So it's no surprise at all, I think, that feminists who have built up um, experiences in grassroots activism and organization online and offline 
are taking a leading role in the latest movement. And even for those who have not been directly involved, uh, many young urban women um, have been readily exposed to and inspired by um, feminist ideas. So, yeah, I was going to ask you about um, communication between protesters. I mean, it seemed that people knew what was happening elsewhere in China, and that, um, but I don't know whether these groups were actually communicating with each other or whether it was just sort of the censorship systems being overloaded. You know, I guess we also saw that Twitter account, Li Laoshi, coming to the fore, and you um, interviewed him, but was he just sort of a conduit taking information to the outside world or do you think it, it was more of a role how i mean i guess you know my big question is what can we tell from the way the information circulated this time yeah i think you're right that like the chinese censorship mechanism has been overloaded by kind of all this information that's been posted a lot of this like protest footage these videos and information they were posted on chinese social media first they were posted on wechat on weibo some of them might be taken down but then others will kind of like keep posting the same thing keep a relay to have more people get to know what's what has happened uh, and that has informed a lot of people there is not kind of like a central let's say telegram channel or like a account that's been like posting all of this but just through this more grassroots movement of like posting information educating other people people are getting you know more about okay here's what the protests in shanghai have been doing here's what the people in wuhan or in Zhengzhou in the foxconn factory have been doing but then i think li laoshi the teacher li on twitter he really come up as like an alternative way to get information for those people who already know how to use a vpn and get access to twitter anyway so for a lot of these people they might feel like okay maybe i have missed some information on wechat because that has been censored so how do i make sure i know the full picture i actually want to get out of the great firewall i want to go to somewhere where they can have like keep a whole catalog of what has been happening and i think teacherly has become that place for these people like people are going there to see okay this is like a full picture going on in china but that is only a small group of people who already know how to use a vpn so i would assume that like a lot of people are not really that getting information directly from him, but more from their friends, their family, who like just keeps posting on social media to crowd out like the censors. So it almost seems like all the systems that are in place have really kind of worked from the state's point of view that if they, and it might be, you know, I, I wonder if it was just kind of coincidence that protests happened over a weekend when maybe censors were not working and stuff. <laughs> um, but they, you know, allowed people to let off steam. The state listened, then it stepped in, gave certain amount of concessions. Um, you, you know, does it show the adaptiveness of the system? I know it's a question for either of you. Uh, one protest I talked to actually told me she did feel that like there were more people on the street because it happened on the weekends and because people do not have to go to work and so they <laughs> feel more able to kind of like show their support to this movement um and then when monday came they were like oh I'm, i was gonna go to work anyway so i have like less of a desire to go to the street again <laughs> and this protesters who i talked to also feel like they were kind of surprised that the police has been kind of like pretty restrained in the first place they were not immediately reacting with violence the violence we saw usually happened like during 
in the end of it, when people kind of like when the protests were kind of like got singled out, um, and they feel like if the police were more violent in the beginning, it would actually it would, it would probably end much more ugly than we than we have seen. Um, so I do think like that's I I I. I'm happy that's what happened. I'm happy we did not have to witness more tragedy, even though I think there are still people are still questioning have there been protesters like uh, detained by the police that we still don't know. Um, but so far, I feel like the kind of the police restraint coupled with kind of a, this spontaneous urge from people to join to join the protest to go on the streets that really created what we see today. And and Bill, I mean, you were talking about kind of a movement that lacked a leader and lacked a focus. I mean, but do you think possibly by just seeing so many other students out on the street with similar grievances to themselves, that this could encourage the protesters maybe to build some ties amongst themselves, um, you know, now that they can see, oh, gosh, it's not just me? In some ways, perhaps, but I think it shouldn't be underestimated the degree to which it would be dangerous for protesters to start to try to build a wide circle of deep links and put together any kind of organization. And I think that the people doing these protests uh, or that the protesters engaged in these protests are sufficiently savvy to understand the risks involved in that in Chinese society. Um, So I, I think it would be very unlikely that we'd see big organizations forming. What I do remain somewhat surprised at actually is not just that the news of the protests that were happening in different cities got out, because I think it did. Um, both it got out to the wider world, and I think it also diffused very quickly and, and widely within China, um, such that people were aware that these things were happening all over the place in real time. Um, but all across the board, uh, news of embarrassing or contentious incidents has been spreading rather easily uh, during the last few months. Uh, if we go all the way back to the, the protest on uh, Tiao, which was supposedly an individual act. You're talking about the banner that was hung off a bridge in Beijing and it yes. had a lot of um, anti-COVID lockdown sort of slogans saying things like, we don't want lockdowns, we want to eat. Yes, so there's this physicist from the Northeast, I believe, supposedly, uh, has been identified as the protester uh, in a number of sources. But... I don't know exactly who it was or why uh, beyond that, but it it could have been more than one person. It could have just been him. I don't know. But that act, uh, I was surprised that it happened a few days before the Party Congress. It happened in central Beijing and that the video of it got out all over the world, you know, within China and all over the world. And the other thing is that at least from the limited uh, knowledge I have of how widely that diffused in China, it seemed as though it really did diffuse pretty widely. A lot of people knew about that, Um, even though, of course, it wasn't reported on domestic media, posting of the video was was censored very quickly and, and reasonably effectively. And the same with these protests. The fire, the video of the fire also seems to have spread I don't know, I was about to say it spread like wildfire, but it, it, it spread rather quickly and effectively to many, many people inside China as well as to the rest of the world. That's either a failure or a conscious omission on the part of the sort of general censorship apparatus, right? Either there's some way in which it doesn't work as effectively as we thought or as the Chinese government thought, or it can work and they're choosing not to use it which would be even more interesting. 
but I, I don't know which it is and I have no insight really onto why that would be. But it is striking to me that videos and films and messages around these issues and around the protests have, have in fact diffused very widely over electronic media. I mean, see, this is what you study and watch. Do you think there's a, do you, would you put it down to, you know, happenstance or a conscious decision? I think there's some difference between kind of the information about the Sutongqiao Bridge protest and the information about the fire in Xinjiang, in the sense that because that protest actually mentioned Xi Jinping by his name, so it is actually more sensitive, and it did result into a lot of people getting their WeChat accounts getting permanently banned just by posting one photo of it. So I think back then there was like a harsher censorship campaign to keep information in control. And this time, because it was kind of like largely seen as some a run of like a, a local government, it's not really kind of like tied to Xi Jinping himself, the, the very first fire. Um, so I think there, the censors were not going out as hard to kind of like keep the information not reaching people in other provinces in other part of China. That could be why, kind of like, maybe they just misunderstood how how much impact this 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 incident will have on the mind of other people. They just thought that well, this will be think, uh, become one of the other tragedies we have seen during the pandemic, like maybe the bus uh, accident in Guizhou, um, and they would say maybe they will not have that much of a, of impact. But then they they were wrong, and then people actually reacted so strong about it, they started to form a protest. So I think that could be why just like the information were not kind of contained in the very beginning. And once they got out, people will start to spread it themselves. And that bus accident that you're talking about is uh, when a group of people were being taken to quarantine in the middle of the night and they were all killed. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it happened either in August or September. It was a bus transferring, I think, 28 people to a centralized quarantine uh, in a, during midnight and the bus had an accident and everyone died. Uh, everyone who was on the bus died. So it was also kind of seen as this like side effect of the pandemic policy because the pandemic control that these people died. Um, but then it did not gain as much attention and anger as the fire in Xinjiang. I'm always wondering if there's a real advantage for the state in allowing people to know about the protests and then, you know, loosening up on restrictions and, and showing that degree of responsiveness and whether that might be one of the reasons why say, your friends are, uh, seem to be, you know, quite optimistic about the future. I, I would say that's probably happening right now. People uh, who are aware that the protest has happened and who saw like how the a government immediately announced this like easing measures they probably will see the first thing as leading to a second one um so yes maybe this is what they what they wanted but i would say that i don't think they would really consciously allow the protest to happen because they don't know how big it will develop they don't know how more radical the slogans are gonna get so i wouldn't really see them kind of like encouraging this to develop so that they can take a take a change in your policy stance um it's probably more of a coincidence of like okay uh we are already going to roll back some of the measures anyway so since the, you are asking for it we're giving it to you faster now but i mean is there going to be a consequence for the the most prominent people who spoke up on the street um because my reaction when i first saw it was you know real admiration but also fear just because of what generally happens to people that stick their head above the parapet in china i mean bill do you think there's going to be consequences or, or are they just going to let that part of it slide 
I, I think there already have been some consequences for at least a small number of people. Uh, we do know of, of some protesters being arrested uh, and actually even uh, treated violently at the protest. Um, I think that it's also been clear in the past few days that in at least certain cities, uh, police have been tracking down people who've been at the protest and, and asking them some questions over the phone. Now, I think most of the time that's actually a very clever and subtle tactic being used to say, I'm watching you and I know what you did. Please don't do it again. Right? And that, that's probably sufficient to deter most of the protesters who received those messages. But in some cases that could potentially lead to sort of rising or spiraling consequences if they decide that, oh, this is really somebody who is a ringleader who needs to be singled out for, for harsher punishment. But I also think we don't want to assume that the state is just itching for repression. They're not. Repression is very costly. It costs resources and it costs reputation. Even in China, you don't get a free pass on, on repression um, if you're the state. So if you don't have to use it, it's better to leave that tool in the box. Uh, as I think they've decided mostly to do this time. And that's a very hard lesson for governments to learn, not least the Chinese government. But I think they really have learned it over a period of time, which is not to say that they're inherently less repressive or or uh, less likely to repress than, than other governments or than they had been in the past, but rather that they're thinking much more intelligently about how to use that most effectively to get to the place that they really want, which is lack of social disorder. Right? They want social stability uh, and they want to be able to move ahead with the rest of their agenda. Uh, and it's more effective sometimes not to repress than to repress because repression can backfire. And there's nothing more dangerous for the state than failed or backfired repression. There were hostile foreign forces, of course. Um, <laughs> I mean, does this hurt the state a bit? Because there's been a lot of mockery of the state about this hostile foreign forces thing. Um, you know, can they still use that card or is it tarnished a bit? I think they use that card every day in all kinds of settings. Um, I don't know how tarnished it is or not, um, but you know, hostile foreign forces are everywhere in every society. And you know, the Chinese government is not the only government that uses essentially that card. Um, but they particularly like it, and it's always a kind of go-to response. I really don't know how many people believe it, but I think it must work for at least some segments of society. Uh, alternatively, it could just be a way of justifying things internally, right? That you know, in an earlier time, the government would say that this has become an antagonistic contradiction, uh, or that this is you know counter-revolutionary uh, action. They, they don't use those terms so much publicly anymore, at least. Uh, but to say that this is a, something linked to hostile foreign forces is a similar signal. This is outside the boundary uh, of acceptability uh, and needs to stop where it may be repressed. Uh, I do think I've observed that because the government has used this narrative of hostile foreign forces so much, the people are developing their own responses. Like they know how to fight back humorously to say that, oh, like the foreign forces caused all these pains they're associated with the lockdown and the pandemic policies. They are learning to kind of like uh, find the loopholes in this state narrative about foreign forces and they're, they're tearing it down on social media. And like, I love to see that. Um, looking forward, it's actually going to be a very tough year for Xi Jinping. I mean, unemployment among graduates is at 
Some studies say that hospital emergency rooms might be overloaded by 15 times when these restrictions are lifted. The economy looks really bad. I mean, Bill, do you think this was just kind of a spasm of uh, anti-COVID zero discontent, which is has now passed? Or do you think that this is the start of uh, sort of deeper rumblings of discontent? I'm not sure it's the start of deeper rumblings. I think it may be more of a, of a reflection of them, uh, because I think for some time there's been a lot of, sort of generalized and very uh, significant economic malaise uh, in Chinese society that a lot of people are, are very disappointed with the state of the economy. Uh, the economy has been doing quite poorly for a while. Um, really, I would say since 2008, 2009, uh, China has not had a sustainable uh, model for continuing economic growth. Um, there's been a failure to transition away from the export processing manufacturing based model that worked very well for about 15 years before the global financial crisis to something new. The fact that we've seen sort of more acute problems in two key sectors, right? Two key sectors that had been very important for the Chinese economy previously. One is the real estate sector uh, and the other is the tech sector and particularly e-commerce, right? So in real estate, uh, since 2006, when governments were not really allowed anymore to collect illicit fees and taxes, these extra budgetary fees, um, after that, they began to rely very heavily on the sale of land use rights to real estate developers for local government income, such that by about 2011, something like 70% of local government revenue was coming from these real estate land sales, uh, land use rights sales. Um, that has only gotten more intensive uh, since there are more and more uh, uh, severe uh, of a problem. By comparison, in 2006, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York warned in a report that 35% uh, of American household wealth was in real estate, and this was very dangerous, as was proven correct two years later. Um, as of about 2011-2012, almost 70% of Chinese household wealth was in real estate. Now it's deflating quite rapidly, and the, and the issue is to prevent a collapse. Right? How does the government prevent it from collapsing completely? If we look at e-commerce, that was a huge bright spot for the Chinese economy as a whole for a very long time. Uh, and in many countries, including in the UK and I assume and the US and I assume also in Australia, uh, e-commerce was a huge one. Uh, it was a huge uh, booming industry during the lockdowns, right? Because you couldn't go to the shop; all you could do was buy things online. In China, that hasn't happened, and a big reason why that hasn't happened is that the e-commerce giants were actually structured as subsidiaries of holding companies. And the holding companies were registered then in jurisdictions like the Cayman Islands or the British Virgin Islands under what's called the Variable Interest Entity Structure, the VIE Structure, uh, some kind of arcane financial uh, instrument. The Chinese government earlier this year decided to crack down on the use of that structure for these purposes, which has made e-commerce companies far less profitable and far less agile. So in these two key sectors, e-commerce slash tech, and also in real estate, we've seen really uh, major hits taken. Uh, and then if we go beyond those sectors, the Chinese economy is not as healthy uh, as it may appear from a distance.
Chinchin, looking forward, I mean, how do you think they can win back the narrative on COVID? Because it's a really tricky period that, that China has ahead. It looks like the, the project is to open up by Spring Festival or, you know, at the very least by the time of the two meetings in March. Um, but the vaccination is starting from a long way back in terms of the elderly. It may not be heroic. I mean, how do you see it playing out? I think there are great uncertainties right now with how the pandemic will unfold in China, like the real pandemic. Because in the past three years, most of the people experienced pandemic control measures, not really the pandemic itself. And there are lots of uncertainties. There will be uh, lots of people getting sick. There will be mass infections. And we don't know about the fatality rate with the fact that you just mentioned lots of people had their vaccines long time ago. So from what I can see right now in the public discourse is that those who were supporting zero COVID, especially some of those nationalist influencers, they are blaming the the experts, experts like Zhang Wenhong, who has been advocating for like living with a virus for a long time. And they are blaming the other citizens um, that they call Tangping Pai, the lying, lying flat. They probably are blaming protesters privately, but I don't see that a lot in the public domain because in public domain, they still censored information. Um, and they, it doesn't look like they are encouraged to, to, to uh, shift the blame to the, to, to the protesters in public. And on the other hand, I see that lots of criticisms are still, still there, despite that there's a U-turn, basically. They are changing from containment to mitigation. The criticisms are still there because people are saying, you know, you should have done this earlier. You've wasted so much time. We suffered so much in the past three years for what? And now it's just a fully open in many places. And the messaging also changed dramatically. Just a month ago, People's Daily, a official media, were still pushing the message that long COVID is very serious. But now they're saying there's no evidence on long COVID. And then um, another expert, Feng Zijian, had a, a seminar at Tsinghua where he said in the first wave, there will be 60% of the population um, who will get infected and eventually 80 to 90% of the population will get infected. And then today it's, it's Zhang Wenhong in the news who said that 99% of the people um, need not to go to the hospital if they test positive. So yeah, it's changed completely. Finally, Zhiyi, I, I mean, I wanted to ask you one thing that really surprised me was the speed with which things turned personal and protesters started targeting Xi Jinping with these, you know, slogans like down with Xi Jinping and China does not need an emperor. Uh, I mean, you know, as Bill's just explained, there's all these various reasons for um, discontent. And yet, he seemed to be a target, kind of unlike protests we've seen in the past. Do you think the state should be worried by that? Um, yes, uh, I think there has something to do with the timing because the protests happened right after the 20th National Party Congress. And a lot of people are still grappling with the fact that he actually became the state leader for another five years. And what does that mean? So I feel like when these people were going on the streets, they were also kind of thinking how they would kind of respond to that and whether that should reflect in their 
protest slogans. I think a lot of them, especially the young kind of urban elites, they're not happy with the fact that uh, Xi Jinping will become kind of the leader of China for another five years or even longer. Um, so that's kind of like why some of them were showing that slogans or that echoes with some of the protesters, definitely not all of them. Um, right now, I definitely feel like because of protests like this and because of like the Sitong Chao banner protest, uh, some people are more and more kind of like acquainted with this idea that we can speak out against kind of Xi Jinping himself, like in a personal way, even though this will comes with a lot of risks. But if they are kind of like cornered, if they really feel the pressure like they did this time with the pandemic policies, they they, that become one of their toolbox into expressing their ideas, expressing their dissent, and maybe push for more changes. So I do think in the future, if we ever see kind of like this like whole society sentiment against the government, against the leader in, in some way, then the slogans will probably will be used again. Um, but I don't know what... COVID is really kind of like a, this big thing that get, gather a lot of people from different classes, different localities, different backgrounds to have their anger towards one thing. Um, I don't know what's the next thing going to be, but if that happens, we will see this again. Zui, Bill, and Chen Chen, thanks for joining us. No, thank you for having me. It was really, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Zoe Young, William Hurst, and Chen Chen Zhang, and to my co-host, Louisa Lin. Our editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Wing Kuang, our theme music is by Sisu Bilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Zeb Danta. Bye for now.